Uh, so good evening and welcome and thank you very much for being here. I'd like to invite uh, Grace Point, who is a teacher education candidate in what we call our NITEP program, our Indigenous Teacher Education program. And um, Grace also does a variety of other work at UBC. Uh, she's also the early primary language education liaison at the Musqueam Language and Cultural Program. So thank you for being here. Siem nasieya, hi tap kata swalap, kwithi alap, kwith me e tana lelam, e tana tamos tuh musqueam masteo, anta clasi. Friends and honored guests, thank you all for coming here to this house, here on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded land of the Musqueam people. Uh, my name is Grace Point, and I am from Musqueam. I am very pleased to see you all. And I just want to say, welcome. And uh, because I am a student in the education program, I'm gonna sneak off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Grace. Really appreciate it. So, um, as a dean, I tell everyone this. Uh, universities are now ranked uh, worldwide, and then individual faculties are ranked. And so in the Canadian context, there are 63 schools and faculties of education. Uh, the new rankings have just come out, the most prestigious rankings, and we have ranked second out of the 63 uh, schools and faculties in the country. In some ways, really, I'm not sure it's more importantly, but in the global context, and you can imagine how many faculties and schools of education there are in the globe, uh, we have ranked ninth. So we're in the top 10 faculties and schools of education in the world, uh, which we uh, consider, or certainly I do as dean, quite something. And it's not uh, my doing as dean, it's the stellar work of the faculty and students in the faculty of education, which allows that ranking to happen. So we're very proud of ourselves in the faculty of education at UBC. And we're also very proud to be doing the work we're doing around mental health literacy. So we actually want to have our teacher education candidates to be literate. So this is a, a term, a phrase we've developed. So we don't expect our teacher education candidates to be diagnosticians, uh, to diagnose mental health issues, but we expect them when they go into the profession to be literate about 
what is happening with students in their classroom and that they can make and be knowledgeable and make appropriate referrals uh, it, to the community, uh, to organizations and individuals. So UBC itself, you may know, is placing uh, great importance on mental health and mental health of students. Generally speaking, one in five of our students at UBC is dealing with a mental health issue. Uh, and certainly those of you who are in public education in any way or located elsewhere know that many people are experiencing difficulty around their mental health because almost everyone is in a classroom in a school. We felt it was really important that we equip, educate our teacher educators to go into the classroom. So I'm very pleased with that work that we're doing, and this evening is an example of bringing that work to the public. So let me introduce our keynote speaker of the evening, Humble the Poet. And so Humble himself is a former teacher. Uh, he's a filmmaker, a best-selling author, a hip-hop artist, a designer, a social media influencer, and a public speaker in the area of education, leadership, and self-development. So welcome, Humble. Test, test. Can you guys hear me? I was debating whether I should just jump on the stage or <clears throat> make the most of those three. Um, thank you so much, Dean, for the wonderful introduction. Um, I don't, I am not well, I'm not literate in the, in, in the keynote speaking world, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna do a lot of this and fidget and play with my tissue. Um, thank you guys so much for coming through and um, thank you for being a part of a very important conversation. Um, I went to York University's uh, Faculty of Education, and I uh, got my letter of acceptance, you know, conditional letter of acceptance saying, you know, as long as you keep your grades at a certain level, you can be in this program. So I was in year four of my three-year degree, and I was uh, studying for my exams, knowing that all I gotta do is get an A in this course, and they'll keep my admission to Teachers College the following year. And it was the first time I had to study for an open book exam. And I didn't know what an open book exam is. is you figure if I can have the book there, it's going to be easy. And I had this moment where I'm, I'm reading a chapter, and I don't understand what I'm reading. And it doesn't really matter that the book's going to be in front of me during the exam, because I don't even know what it says. And I began to feel like a potato cooking from the inside out. It got really warm inside me until that warmth spread. And then all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And then I started hyperventilating. And then I started thinking about all those people I see on TV who hyperventilate and you give them the, you know, the little brown paper bag to breathe into. And I was like, holy crap, I'm having an anxiety attack. That was probably the very first time I ever acknowledged having any sort of episode related to my mental health. That doesn't mean in my fourth year of my three-year program, that that was the first time I ever had a mental health issue. That was just the first time I recognized it. Not very many of us ask the question, what's your earliest memory 
of anxiety or a mental health episode. I did. And my memory goes back to when I was four years old. When I was four years old, there was one rule in my house. Don't wake up dad. My dad was a cab driver. He worked at night. So during the day, he slept. So we were told, don't wake up dad, which meant play outside, stay away from his bedroom, don't make any noise. So one day I'm playing outside, trying to keep the rules not to wake up dad. And then my sister comes up to me and she says, dad got beat up. And when you're four years old and someone gets beat up, you're thinking about the cartoons. You're thinking somebody hit him with a two-piece and he fell down and or he exploded or something. You don't know what to think. So me and my sister quietly opened his door and he was asleep. And we crept up to the bed and I saw a large gash on his forehead. And my four-year-old self, what it looked like was, you know when you get like oil and water and you mix it together and you get that like technicolor thing going on? That's what that big gash looked like. It was, it was kind of bloody. It, it was still kind of, you know, clotting. And I remember just for the first time seeing my father as a human being, a vulnerable human being. And the next day, his cab, which was also our family car, was a, a big shield was installed in, to separate the back seat from the front seat. Four-year-old me thought it was the coolest thing ever. It had a sliding window, had this little place that you put the money in. So my, I'd pretend to be the driver. My sister would be in the back, and she'd hand me money. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. But it was hard to sleep the next night. Four-year-old me didn't know why it was hard to sleep. Five-year-old me didn't realize that either. Six-year-old me, seven-year-old me. Fifteen-year-old me just knew that he wanted to smash that cab. He was sick of it. He didn't like worrying. And eventually, my father got uh, a job with the airport taxi, much safer, worked his 24-hour shifts. So a whole new thing to worry about. But we were less worried about him coming home, getting robbed, or getting attacked. Um, and that family car with the big shield disappeared. But the one thing that didn't disappear was the impact that it had on me. It's probably the reason I am the person I am today. Um, you see, in my household and many immigrant households, mental health isn't a thing. Trauma is not a thing. Talking about how you feel is not a thing. If you don't act normal, then you're most likely possessed. <laughs> or faking it. Um, my father never brought that situation up ever to us. Um, for me, it was always about keeping them happy. And my father's number one rule was stay in school and I'll always take care of you. And I took that so literally that not only did I stay in school, even when it was time to leave school, I got a job that kept me in school. Um, but beyond that, I realized how many of my decisions were based on, I have to prove my parents' sacrifice right. My parents came to this country. They went through all of these things. I have to prove the sacrifice right. And it's a romantic thought. It's very honorable to sacrifice our own well-being and our own personal ambitions to make these immigrants happy for what they did for us. And I really thought that that was the right way to do it. Um, it took until maybe four years ago to realize that that chip on my shoulder was probably taking me in different directions I didn't need to be in. And the lack of tools that will happen in my family and those around me were not only preventable, but also causing a lot more damage. I grew up in a neighborhood where 
you're just told to suck it up. I grew up in a neighborhood where vulnerability was seen as weakness. I grew up in a neighborhood where tight pants were seen as weakness, just to give you an idea of what type of neighborhood I grew up in. And I realized once I became a teacher that I not only lacked the tools to deal with my own mental health, I also lacked the tools to recognize anybody else's struggles. I had a student, his name was Faiz, a little Pakistani boy. And he was the shortest kid in my class. I was teaching grade four at the time, but he was a little firecracker. And I had about 33 kids in my class. I was a first year teacher. And as many of you graduates know, there's no real training program. They throw you in the classroom and you got to figure it out for the next 30 to 40 years. And then you get to retire, still not knowing what we're doing. Um, I found myself trying to figure out how I can keep this one individual from making it difficult for all the other kids to learn. Sometimes they used to take all the extra, you know, the flyers that you got to give out the kids, you take all the extras and put in a little pile for that one kid who always loses it. I used to sit there and make Faiz color, color organize them just to keep him busy. When you go to another teacher, oh, that's ADHD, or they throw another acronym there. And me not knowing if this child was born with it, if there's support for that child, and it didn't matter because what I had was 33 other kids to deal with. And I also grew up with a suck it up mentality, telling him regretfully that he needed to figure this out for his own success. You know, it sounds ridiculous to say that to a nine-year-old, but in 2003, when mental health wasn't even a term people were using, it was quite common. I also realized that we can put bandages on our mental health struggles temporarily and promise ourselves that we fix them. You know, there's a good quote I heard that, you know, if a $5 million check can fix your depression, it was never depression. Um, as a teacher, uh, I thought going from student life to teaching life was draining me of my energy, so I went to the doctors. And I was like, doctor, I'm tired all the time. And at this point, I hadn't discovered coffee. That's another reason. But I said, I'm tired all the time. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. I probably have low iron. You know, what do you recommend? And he ran some tests. And he was a young dude, and he came back, and he said, uh, your iron's okay, but I think you might be dealing with depression. And with my lack of tools, I said, but I'm not sad. And he said, depression isn't sadness. Depression can manifest itself in a lot of ways. And then he gave me a prescription for antidepressants and said, try these out, see if you feel better. Um, so I started taking these antidepressants, wondering, why do I got to take antidepressants when I'm not sad? Just kept thinking depression and sad are the same thing. Um, the only reason I took them is because he equated it to my mother. He said, this might be genetic. And uh, you do not have to be very literate in mental health to see the mental health issues that my mom was dealing with at the time. Uh, when things were good, she had a bad attitude towards it. When things were bad, she had an even worse attitude towards it. So for someone to say, hey, that could be chemicals in her brain, and you might have that too, was enough for me to start taking these pills. But the problem with the pills was it made it hard to drive. It made it hard to keep my poker game up to its optimal level. It made it hard for me to keep a sentence. Uh, it made it hard for me to do anything. And probably after a week, I abandoned it. Um, 
and, and turned to caffeine, which I'm realizing later on was really a stimulant, let alone something that I chose to use for medication. And now that I found my little patch, my little uh, piece of duct tape, my little piece of gum that I can stick everything together, I think I'm fixed and everything's gonna be great. And then I decided, okay, I'm an adult, I'm working a full-time job, what do adults do after work? I don't have homework anymore, like what do adults do? And you know, adults go to bars, adults do social stuff, and I was like, okay, what can I do that will help me meet girls? Because priorities. And I ended up going to a, a hip-hop concert. At this hip-hop concert, it was opened by a spoken word artist. Uh, and the spoken word artist said these two lines, and at the end of the day, I was like, wow. He just said, like a fine wine, our love gets better with time. And all the girls melted. And I'm just looking around like, I, I could have said that. <laughs> so the next week, me, me and one of my friends, uh, we went to a coffee shop, and we signed up for this uh, spoken word contest spoken word poetry competition. I scribbled some poetry down, and I entered the contest, and I finished in second place. Second place out of four people. But I finished in second place nonetheless. And, and, and this lovely young lady came up to me and said, wow, you're really good. I hope to see you here next week. And I was like, holy crap, instant icebreaker. Let's keep doing this. Um, but I wrote from my heart. And I continued to write from my heart. And things felt great. And I never took it serious. It was just something to do after work because I didn't know what else people were supposed to do after work. And it was a great icebreaker to meet people, ladies especially. And it was also a really good way of kind of taking everything that was existing right here and putting it somewhere. Eventually, it took a life of its own. And eventually, somebody said, do you have an artist name? And I'm like, I was thinking Humble the Poet. And they're like, that's a stupid name. And I was like, you know what? Because y'all think it's stupid. I'm going to keep it, not realizing that it's a long name. It's not very humble to call yourself humble. <laughs> um, and social media handles, long ones are never a good thing. Um, and here I was, teacher by day, rapper by night, spoken word poetry. To me, spoken word poetry was super cool because you didn't need anything to do it. All you needed was your story and your voice. And the more you practice talking to an audience, the better you get. It's not rocket science. And then one day I did it to music, and all of a sudden I became a hip-hop artist because my voice would snatch onto the beat. I had a rhythm. My parents had put me into different religious studies, and I was singing hymns and playing tabla my entire life. Little did they know that they were preparing me for this life. <laughs> and it felt great. It feels great to be validated. You know, it feels great to be recognized. It feels great to be seen. Um, and it becomes an addiction. And I just heard this amazing definition of addiction. Uh, addiction is that thing that feels like it's almost going to get the job done. It almost feels good enough. So you keep doing it over and over. It's never good enough, but you keep doing it over and over because it feels almost good enough. So I began this pursuit and chase of it. So I was humbled a poet by night, teacher by day, until the duct tape fell off. 2008 hit. I had put some money in the stock market blindly, not knowing that I figured was what adults do. Watched everything I had disappear. Uh, credit card debt was racking up. And then all of a sudden, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I can get you a record deal. And I was like, I got a job, man. I'm not trying to do any of that stuff. He's like, hey, the record deal is worth more than you get paid as a teacher. It'll be worth more than you get paid as a teacher for two years. 
And I was like, sign me up. And I literally, at the end of 2010, right before Christmas holidays, told the kids that I wasn't coming back in January. And 2011 began. And all of a sudden, all that pain and all that financial stress and all these things went away again because I found this new piece of duct tape to put over what I was dealing with. 2011 was a wonderful year because that duct tape was not the record deal. That duct tape was the hope. The hope that the record deal was going to make it all go away. Um, I lived a beautiful artist's life. I woke up. I took four-hour walks. I gained inspiration. I wrote about it. I shared it with the world. I made no money doing it. But I expect that at any moment, that big check from the record deal was going to come in. It took me one year of denial to realize that it wasn't. So by the end of 2010, sorry, the end of 2011, I was unemployed, found out that this record deal was not going to happen. The individual that promised that record deal was going to happen had disappeared. And now I was about $80,000 in debt, paying my mortgage with a credit card, living off lines of credit. And I had absolutely no way of paying any of this because I had no means of earning. And then all of a sudden, these voices in your head start to come and start to speak to you. You're a failure. You effed up. You messed up. You thought you were so smart the whole time. Look at you now. What are people going to think about you? People are going to call you a failure. People are going to laugh at you. People are going to be embarrassed. Not only was that $80,000 of debt, credit card, and line of credit, some of that was money from friends that I had borrowed thinking at any moment the check was going to come from the record deal and I'll pay them right back. I just needed a couple thousand dollars to pay off this bill. I needed a couple thousand dollars to, to buy a flight to go do that unpaid gig that was going to get me a lot of exposure. You know, I was getting invited to a lot of cool places. I got invited to perform at Lollapalooza. They didn't pay me, but I got invited. And it looks good for social media. But, you know, I left $500 poor after having that experience, after borrowing money from somebody else to make it all happen. And that's when I probably hit the proverbial, or was about to hit that proverbial rock bottom. And at that point, <clears throat> what tools did I have? I had a lot of voices in my head telling me how stupid I was to ever think that I could live a life beyond the norm. Um, I had a lot of people who I was too afraid to admit that I messed up to, so I began to avoid them. And my best friend became NyQuil. These were my tools to deal with the struggles that I was dealing with. And for three weeks, I laid in bed, waiting, hoping, and praying that the cavalry will come in, like in the movies, and just save the day. I don't even know what the cavalry would be in this case. Just some really good-looking person would show up with a check and just be like, here you go, humble. We're going to fix all your problems. Um, the three weeks did help. What I didn't realize what was happening over that three weeks was I was resting. I was taking a break. I was giving myself an opportunity to lick my wounds and think about what was happening. And probably after the three weeks, I got up. And the first two words that went in my head were sink or swim. Your problems right now may not be your fault. That person who lied to you about the record deal, that may not be your fault. Uh, 
what happened in 2008 with the, with the financial crash, that may not be your fault. Uh, all this debt that you racked up thinking that all of this, it was your fault. But, you know, you're really good at pointing fingers at other people. So we'll, we'll say it's not your fault. However, it's still all your responsibility. And I took some personal responsibility for that. And I was like, okay, I got to get myself out of this rut. So I did what anybody who felt like they had hit rock bottom would do. I went on Tumblr. And I read all the Tumblr quotes. And I'm like, this stuff's going to make me feel better. All right, quote number one. God does not close a door without opening a window. I feel great. Actually, I don't. Number two, keep going. Everything will work out. Also felt kind of BS. And then I realized what needed to happen was things needed to feel practical. Things needed to feel pragmatic. Things needed to actually help me because I had bills to pay. I had people to answer to. I had uncomfortable conversations that needed to happen. Um, I had lost about 25 pounds from what you see here. And as you can see, I don't have 25 pounds to lose. I was all beard and bones. In my head, I couldn't see it. In my head, I was like, ooh, you got trimmed. Clothes is looking good. You know, I quit drinking milk because I, I was just afraid of not being able to keep my fridge clean, not realizing that I was just being malnutritioned. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't resting properly. And what I had to do, the first thing I had to do was have that uncomfortable conversation with myself, which is, look, you mess things up. You're going to make things worse. We need to pause. So I sold my place. I had the uncomfortable conversations with everybody that I owed money to. And I said, look, man, I owe you money. I don't have your money. I will get you your money. I don't know when. I don't know how. But you won't see me taking any trips to Cancun in the meantime. And I don't want to avoid you. And I don't want this to ruin our friendship. And I did the other thing that every 30-year-old loves to do. I moved back home with my parents. And of course, my parents welcomed me with open arms and were so sweet and helped me heal, kind of. There was a lot of I told you so's. You know, again, our parents don't have the tools to, to, to help us when we're going through our worst times. Um, and we can't hold that against them. You know, we have to identify those gaps and, and work on them ourselves. But what ended up happening was I made the environmental shifts that needed to happen for things to get a little bit better. There is no magic wand to our mental health. The reason I left my job to chase this record deal, it never was about paying off a debt. It never was about pursuing my artistic career. It all went back to that little boy who saw his father's injuries and never wanted to see that ever happen again. But I didn't realize that was my motivation for all the decisions I was making. And I didn't realize that I wasn't being pulled by a passion or a love. I was being pushed by an invisible pressure that I was unable to recognize. You know, I was able to recognize an anxiety attack studying for an exam. Everything made sense, but I wasn't able to make these connections. And this is what we're here to talk about. We're here to identify mental health issues and how they can manifest themselves, especially when we're thinking about younger people or people who can't communicate in English or people who were never raised in a world where vulnerability and self-awareness are 
strengths to have. When I had that realization, it was the first time that I allowed the, the proverbial soccer ball of my life. I stopped kicking it around and I put my foot on top of it and I was able to get a clear view of what was happening. I got out of debt, took five years, but I did it. I gained the weight back, eating mom's roti will do that. There was no magic wand. There was time and choices and trial and error. We have to adjust our environments on a regular basis. We have to reevaluate our decisions on a regular basis. Some of the things that we think are helping us can end up hurting us. I'm having these conversations with the homies out in LA right now, realizing that being successful and financially abundant when you're dealing with mental health issues puts you in a dangerous situation where you can afford a lot of distractions and you can, avoid, you can afford to avoid a lot of the things that you need to be doing to get better. Just because we can afford a personal trainer doesn't mean we do. Doesn't mean, just because we all have access to a treadmill doesn't mean we run. Just because we could all choose a little dinky $9 alarm clock to wake us up in the morning, knowing that that would be much better for us than checking our phone first thing in the morning and setting a tone for how we feel, doesn't mean we do, because it still goes back to our decisions and our choices and recognizing how they impact us. I just was on a one-year tour around the world for these books, and my best friend, again, was McDonald's breakfast. And it had a negative impact on how I felt about myself and on my energy and the fact that I still can't button this suit clothes again. <laughs> but at least now I'm in a situation where I can recognize it and I can see it. And none of this resulted in me having resentment for the pressures that I felt from my family. They came, as I said, they came from a place where if somebody was acting weird, they would literally consider them possessed or crazy or, in my mom's words, punished by God. Because the lack of literacy, the lack of tools, the lack of opportunities weren't there. And instead of resenting those who came before us, we can identify those gaps and help those who come after us. So wherever we are, and whatever progress we're making, they can build upon it instead of starting from zero. So I get out of debt. It's 2014. And I reward myself by going to Peru and doing ayahuasca. <laughs> and I learned a very, a very, very interesting lesson from that experience. And again, we only have 25 minutes, so I can't really tell you a lot about that. But is this so much happening inside of us? that we don't understand that is going to be a lifelong journey. And most of you here are part of the faculty of education in one way or the other. And the only thing that all teachers really have in common is that you're lifelong learners. You don't learn and stop. There is no end point to your learning. And anybody here who's a classroom teacher, it doesn't matter if you've been doing it for one year or 30 years, nobody has ever confidently said they've seen it all. That's the excitement of the job. And it's the same thing when it comes to our mental health, where as the new things, as new terms are recognized, new issues, you know, the big one that I'm always talking about a lot of my work, despite being a social media influencer, 
aka somebody who has a big following, I speak a lot about the detriment of social media and how it impacts us negatively. To the point where I have two phones. And the phone that I use on a daily basis does not have access to social media so I don't get these little triggers. So I don't pick up the phone, see something that's going to ruin my day, and I don't chase this external validation by counting my likes. Because those are potato chips. And these are things that a lot of people may not recognize. And it's, it's our job as a generation, as a society, to ensure that this becomes part of the ethos and awareness for everybody else to recognize. That there's certain choices that we can make that will have a positive or negative influence on our mental health. And we can go one year, two years, three years, and not have an episode, not have an anxiety attack, not feel down or depressed, not deal with, I'm not, you know, you guys probably have no people out here dealing with seasonal affective disorder, whatever it may be, we may go some time with it, but that does not mean it's been cured. Challenges don't go away. Things don't get easier, we can only get stronger. I got myself out of debt. I began traveling, my, the trajectory of my career started going better and better. The self-help book that I wrote for myself, Unlearn, the idea was I didn't need to learn new things to get better, I had to let go of old ideas. I had to let go of ideas that the world is fair. I had to let go of ideas that I was entitled to happiness. I had to let go of ideas that those who came before me had all the answers. I had to let go of ideas that I was in control. I had to let go of ideas that I can control my emotions. I had to let go of ideas that were taught to me about whose opinions mattered, how we should act, how we should live. I wrote it for myself because I couldn't find it anywhere else. And when I shared it with the public, the big lesson it taught me was, oh, we're all in the same boat. And just as my parents had prepared me going to Kirtan class and singing hymns to be a music artist, being an educator taught me how to take heavy ideas and cut them down into digestible, digestible moments. And realizing that the best way I could help is by serving others. I've always challenged audiences when I do performances not to wear trust issues and pain and self-pity like a badge of honor. Social media is a playground for that. Social media really encourages people to find the ways that their lives suck and, and huddle together. And instead, I challenge people and I ask, how can you take your pain, how can you take the traumas of your past and use them in such a way that they will add value to other people in their life? This isn't a new idea. If you can go back 30,000 years, you're going to see a cave painting. And what you're going to see is two hunters and a big tiger. And the hunters are pretty much telling future generations, stay away from the tiger. You're going to bite your head off. They didn't draw that for likes or clout or followers or some blue check mark. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't do that for any of these external validations. They did it because it needed to be done. The experiences that we're all going through, especially with our mental health, we need to examine them so we can make things a little bit easier for the next generation, knowing that the next generation is going to discover even more. As we peel away this onion, it's going to get deeper and heavier. And the same way, at one point, people used to drive cars, and they were allowed to drive without seatbelts, and that was considered normal. One day we might realize, oh, 
some of the foods that we're eating, some of the ingredients that we're putting into these foods, AKA yellow sticks, amongst other things, are killing us, mentally and physically. And we're gonna look back and be like, oh, you know, look at those really stupid ads of kids smoking cigarettes from the 50s. What are we doing today that we'll be laughing at? And that's our responsibility to kind of figure that out. There is no, I figured it all out. There's only a commitment to learning and getting better at admitting when you were wrong or getting better at admitting you were holding on to a hand-me-down idea that is no longer relevant to the world we live in today. Human nature may not change, but what we're dealing with will constantly be in movement. And as an artist, my only job is to create new things. And my only source of inspiration are the things that bring me pain and confusion and emotion. I want to bring new things into the world. And my biggest obstacle will be those who tell me that we can't be talking about the new because we have to preserve the old. When it comes to mental health, we have to continually move forward and build upon our learning. And the best way we can do that is by exploring ourselves on the inside. The better we understand ourselves, the better we're going to understand our relationship with the world around us. That anxiety attack that I first told you about, had you asked me about an anxiety attack before I had that, I wouldn't even believe they were real. I would just consider anybody who experienced them to be weak. Because that's how I was raised. Boys don't cry. Boys don't get scared. And if you do cry, or you do get scared, or you do get stressed out, then it must be a weakness on your part. Until it happened to me. And once it happened to me, what happened was I didn't gain courage, I gained empathy. The empathy, the pain that we experience can add value to other people's lives if it helps us build empathy and it encourages us to share our experiences. Every single person in this room is a storyteller. Every single person in this room is an artist. Every single person in this room is a creator, an educator, and a student. We have a society that tells you it's a privilege to be an artist. You have to have this many followers. You have to make this much money. But that's not the truth. We need, to, we need to pursue this with the same level of responsibility as those people that painted that picture on the cave. Let's do it because it needs to be done. And let's do it for other people because they're going to have to do it too. How am I doing for time? As in, we're, we're done? Yeah. <laughs> so in conclusion, I'm just going to double check make sure I didn't miss anything super crazy. Um, I, I want to I conclude this by saying I didn't hit this point where I figured it all out. Every day, especially for those who follow me on social media, I just write my story. And every day, if you read the comments, people are like, I needed to hear this today. It's not because I have a magical power. I was a trained educator. I learned how to use simple words to explain ideas. And I did it for years. It's a skill that was practiced. There's nothing magical about it. And I'm telling my story, which is your story. You guys, I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. Share your stories. You can share it in a painting. You can share it in a dissertation. You can share it in an interpretive dance. You can share it in designing clothing. You can share it in jewelry. You can share it in writing a script. 
whatever your creative outlet is, share your story because it will help other people find their own. And think about how often you've connected with another piece of art, you've connected with a teacher, you've connected with a book that helped you find your story. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Here. I'm going to go back and to the formal. <laughs> Terry, you're here. <coughs> Connie in the middle and Patty next to me. Well, I certainly want to thank Humble for uh, your honesty, your artistry, and being able to teach us a lot of great lessons. Sorry, I'm a bit loud. Um, once again, for folks who may have come in um, recently, my name is Suzanne Scott, and I'm the Assistant Dean at the Faculty of Education, uh, responsible for development and alumni engagement. So these types of events are um, exactly what we like to do to welcome alumni and our friends. Um, so I want to thank Humble for uh, his sharing his message. And to, uh, we're, we're all about innovation here, and this is an, is an experiment. So we have, uh, next to Humble, Terry Mooring. She's the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Connie Easton, uh, who is um, with the Richmond School District and um, an advocate for social emotional learning and is um, deeply committed to mental health advocacy. And next to me is Patty Hambler, uh, director of Gosh, that's the actual title. Is. Health Promotion and Education. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Health Promotion and Education at UBC. And so I have a few questions prepared, but we also have Slido.com, which um, we can all have a look at and um, share questions. <laughs> yeah, there's the hashtag. Awesome, eh? And so I have a couple of questions first for Terry, but Humble, please feel free to jump in and share your observations, you know, because we want to be inclusive with you here. My first question for Terry, in your role as president of BC Teachers Federation, you lead BC's over 53,000 teachers? 45,000. 45, right? 45? <laughs> okay, no numbers, right? Um, we, we need a few more. <laughs> <laughs> and roughly teach over half a million public school students in BC. What are you hearing from teachers about the demands they face in the profession and the effects on their mental health? Well, great question and thank you for that. Um, and uh, what I hear from teachers is, uh, what I think we know, is that teaching is a very demanding occupation and it takes a lot of from an individual, and so it's a caring profession. Um, teachers invest um, their heart and souls into their work. It is not just a job. And so what we do is our best to make sure that all our students um, are taken care of, their needs are met, that they're able to learn. And we know um, that we're not always able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that takes a real toll. And so what I hear from teachers is that because, because education is underfunded, uh, we don't have the resources that we need, 
um, teachers make up for, for that. And so they, and they often do that at the expense of their own mental health. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is something that um, we really uh, focus on at the BCTF. Um, what the number one reason why teachers go on sick leave, for example, are mental health issues. Uh, I really appreciated uh, what Humble had to say about, and, and your story, Humble, um, because you know, reducing stigma is, is number one. We all need to tell our stories. Um, and those stories you know, make others know it's okay to tell theirs, and so I really appreciate um, the messaging around, around sharing those stories. Um, you know, none of us are super people, though we like to, to present ourselves that way. Uh, and, um, and I think for teachers in particular, um, there's an expectation that they will be that person to resolve all the issues and, and, and do this work. And so, uh, as I said, number one reason why teachers go on sick leave are mental health issues. So we've developed a lot of programs in the BCTF in order to so early interventions, um, cognitive behavioral therapy that's online. The reason that we developed that program was um, because not every teacher across the province is able to access therapy, for example, especially cognitive behavioral therapy. And so we originally developed the online program in order to make that access pro provincial. Um, what we found, though, were teachers, even where teachers could access that program or access therapy in their home communities, they still chose to use the online program. And I think part of it was the anonymity mm. of being able to do that on your own, um, you know, not sort of um, at your own pace, not have to sort of, uh, you know, it, it just in, in the privacy, in your own private way, I guess. And so, um, you know, we know that teacher mental health is something that uh, we need to focus on, we, and we do a lot of work around that, um, because teacher mental health impacts our students. And so teachers need to make sure that they are, they are okay. And I just wanted to share just one story, because when Humble was talking, I, I thought of this, and um, when I was a young teacher, 25, starting out, um, I, I taught in Quinell for 20 years, um, and the superintendent of schools, and it was in the mid-90s, and there was, there was money in the system. And the superintendents of schools did something really, really smart. And I didn't appreciate it as much at the time as I, as I did later on, is that he um, organized this program for teachers to access. And every teacher in the district could access it, and many of us did. And it was basically a week-long intensive therapy for teachers. It was based on William Glasser's work uh, called Reality, Reality Therapy, and um, it was an investment in teachers. It was, we weren't talking about curriculum, we weren't talking about how this was going to work in classrooms, we weren't talking about any of that. It was us learning about ourselves. Um, when I think of that investment, it was a week out of the classroom, uh, not inexpensive, but when I think of the impact of that investment in teachers, um, it had a profound influence on me, um, and really, you know, uh, still does to this day. Um, what, one of those sort of moments in time where it had a fundamental influence on the teacher that I would become and the person that I would become. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I don't think that we can stress that, those kinds of investments enough. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we necessarily um, do, uh, 
but, uh, and it doesn't need to be someone else ma making that offer, it's also us investing that time in ourselves and, and um, sort of recognizing the importance and the worth of, of that really important work. Yeah. And just to chime in on that, I, re I remember recognizing very quick, because the thing with teachers is there's a high turnover in like the first five years because either it's your thing or it's not your thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's definitely not my thing. <laughs> but uh, I recognized that early because I realized, and, as, and everything is a double-edged sword. And I think the one thing is a teacher mentality is if a student doesn't get it, if a student doesn't get a concept that a teacher is teaching, the teacher never thinks, what's wrong with this kid? Mm -hmm. The teacher thinks, what's wrong with my delivery? What's wrong with the way I'm approaching this? Which is an amazing mindset for a teacher to have, but it could also be used against them. Mm -hmm. So later on, when administration is like, okay, well, everything you're doing this year, we're gonna tack on three new initiatives, and you should be able to still get it all done. And a teacher's mindset's not gonna be like, this is too much work, I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. They're gonna be saying, well, if I can't get it done, what's wrong with me? And it gets exploited, and I think it's really important because as you said, it does lead. Mm -hmm. And you know, the thing that makes teachers great can also end up being their demise as politics, as, as economics, and all of these things come into play. Mm -hmm. And it takes advantage of their core beauty of what it means to be a great educator. I'm going to ask Connie the next question because you're really in, in the thick of it. Um, so as coordinator of mental health, social, and emotional learning and counseling in the Richmond School District, you and your colleagues are tackling some serious youth mental health challenges. What strategies have you implemented and what impact are they having? Um, yeah, thank you for that question. Obviously, we heard, um, you know, that everyone comes to school with already having a history. And all of the, the children that our, our teachers are, are dealing with every day um, struggle with their own challenges around mental health. And we, we're learning more all the time about trauma. We're learning more all the time about social emotional learning, which is the foundation of mental health literacy. So in our elementary schools uh, in Richmond, we're really focusing on projects around that social emotional learning piece by helping um, our students and our staff understand uh, what we call the Castle Wheel, the Consortium for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, which includes self-awareness, and once we're self-aware, and that means learning the words around feelings and emotions, having that language of feelings, then we can begin to self-regulate and self-manage our emotions and our feelings and learn how to recognize and manage those, which helps us to build that social awareness of the world around us, which helps us connect and build relationship skills with others and then make good responsible decisions. So that entire wheel works to support not only our students, but our staff and our teachers as well. Because what we know from the research that Kim Schoenert-Reichel here at UBC has done is that as a teacher's um, level of stress rises, so does the students. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And we know that by addressing the culture in our schools and creating a culture of care and connection, we know that that one important adult in a child's life is usually the thing that can keep them on track and help them you know, have that resilience to bounce back. All of those pieces fit together. And with mental health literacy and the work of Stan Kutcher that we're rolling out in our schools and our district, we're helping students as they get into secondary 
and they're in that space where their brain is learning and growing, and now the amygdala is taking over, they're in that emotional brain. We're helping our staff learn that language, we're helping our kids understand what's happening to them, and that stress is normal and that it's part of life. So now you have children who, from K to seven, are learning the language of feelings. They're learning about how to regulate those feelings. They get into adolescence, all this stuff is happening. And I was a secondary counselor for 24 years, so I, I know all about that. And now they've got a language to talk about this, and they're learning that, you know what? It's normal to be stressed. It's normal to have all this happening in my life. And I can make good choices, like Humble talked about. I can look at wellness, and I can look at how I'm balancing my life and all the pieces of the pie and how it all works together. I can figure out where to go for help. You know, I can go to my foundry. I can go to these different places and get the help I need. And then I can make good choices for myself in terms of my mental health. So it's a big conversation. There's a lot happening. We call it the three-legged stool. There's trauma. There's social-emotional learning and there's mental health literacy. And like any stool, you need all three legs to hold it, hold it together. Thank you, Connie. Yeah. I'm getting a lot of great questions on Slido, but I want to first ask Patty, mm -hmm. in your position as Director of UBC Health Promotion and Education and a student mental health advocate, what changes have you observed over the past decade in student mental health? Sure. So I just want to pick up by saying it's so exciting for me working in student affairs to know what's happening in the current K-12 system and also with our teachers in the teacher education program because currently we're having the same conversations with our how we're approaching mental health with university students and really thinking about the importance of mental health literacy as young adults and how that uh, can help inform the way the students think about their mental health and talk about their mental health. A really key part of mental health literacy is addressing stigma. And one of the shifts that I have seen, and we still have a long way to go to address stigma, but there has been a shift. So I'll just share a short story, which is that in 2009, a colleague um, and myself started a mental health literacy program at UBC called Thrive, which focuses on how to build and maintain your mental health. But that first year of that program, we didn't use the words mental health at all. We, we had a different tagline. We didn't say it was about mental health, even though in the background, those of us organizing, we knew that's what it was about. But we, did, we were afraid to use the words because even not even using the word mental illness, but mental health would have people shy away from engaging with that program. So fast forward 10 years, and now we're at a place where we can openly talk about mental health. And I think it has a lot to do with what students are learning. Um, in the K-12 system and coming into university. It's not universal though, because UBC, as many institutions are international, there are different cultural uh, impacts and different belief systems about mental health, but we have come a really long ways. And now we're at a place where just this past January, we engaged in Bell Let's Talk at UBC, and we had over 10 different student groups on campus host booths around campus mm -hmm. to engage their peers in talking about mental health and mental illness and raising awareness about resources. So mm -hmm. we're, we're getting there slowly and I think that shift has helped bring this conversation into the open and then from there we can start to address some of the underlying issues. The three-legged mm -hmm. stool <laughs> is just as important in higher education as it is mm -hmm. in K-12. Mm -hmm. Thank you, mm -hmm. Patty. I want to pick up on the word stigma. So 
One of the things that I was writing down when Humble was speaking was you mentioned growing up in an immigrant household, mental health is not a thing. And I wrote equal stigma. Um, and we have a question here. Um, may I use your name, perhaps? Naima? Uh, for Humble, how did you explain mental health and your struggles to your parents? How do you think being an immigrant family impacted your and your family's mental health? So essentially, what learnings did you have from your community that we can learn? Um, that's a great question. Thank you, wherever you are. Oh, thanks so much. Um, it was really interesting, especially um, with regards to my relationship with my mother. Um, you know, she, the entire family had moved to a different part of the city because she got a job at the Kellogg's factory. Um, and our house was a two-minute walk from the factory. And I think seven months into her working at the, at the factory, she got injured. And she went on uh, uh, disability. And two years later, the factory shut down. And it had a really, and then she was in a court case to get, to get, uh, to get some money for it. But um, my father didn't have the tools to be supportive of her. So whenever she stressed him out, he reminded her that he was the breadwinner, which caused more stress until one time we had to call the ambulance because she was having probably a panic attack or something. I was very, way too young to recognize what it was. Um, and then later, when I wasn't there anymore, she had discovered breath work. Um, and, I'm, and I'm being very uh, deliberate not to say meditation. I'm going to say breath work. Uh, as in breathing techniques, um, in terms of controlling how much oxygen goes in, how much comes out, what that does to your blood, the alkaline. And she found a lot of benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there was stigma with that for me because the guy who was teaching it on the TV looked like the kind of guy that was going to take all your money. Um, and I was very concerned about that. And I was like, all right, keep doing it if it's helping. Just don't give this guy any money. And when he comes to Toronto and throws a $2,000 class, you don't get to go. Um, but she found, I think she found a lot of value for that. And I think eventually, um, you know, it really just not even, and I mean, somebody can tell me right now the Punjabi words for like negative and positive. And, you know, trying to explain to my mom, you know, if I had a gig and it didn't happen because the venue got shut down or let's say this gig got canceled, my mother's attitude would be that this is God punishing you. This is where she came from. And mm. trying to explain to her that, you know, having these negative thoughts is, is a challenge. And um, it's been an ongoing thing. Um, I think now, uh, and, I, and I'm the baby. I'm, I'm, as, as with most Punjabi households, they, they keep trying until they get a boy. I'm the boy. And uh, being to be taken seriously. So, you know, I think becoming a published author and, and her seeing people stop me in the streets and having these conversations, I think that helped a bit. But I think... Uh, a lot of it had to do with recognizing that she was on her own journey. And um, every time she said to me, when are you getting married? How come you're not married yet? People are asking me when you're getting married. Having this conversation that, she's, she, that it's not a healthy decision to attach her happiness to the outcome of other people's lives. And I think that was probably another way that she kind of recognized it. But I think it's an ongoing conversation. Um, but I think her wellness, I think she's recognized the value of her wellness. Um, whether it be taking on new things. Recently, she knit me a beautiful scarf, 
and you know the entrepreneur in me was like, we could sell these. <laughs> she's like, you know, and she's like, no, no, I don't want the stress. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the first time I heard her advocate for her own mental health. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, yeah. you know, yeah. we're sitting on a gold mine, but okay. <laughs> Uh, also, the, the question of stigma, how, how is the Richmond School District must be a very um, intercultural community of different mm-hmm. yep. faith traditions and so on. How, how do we find the right words and language to address stigma in families? Well, we're working really hard with our parent community to um, have conversations around mental health. So uh, I believe it was last year, we had Stan Kutcher and uh, Dr. Fawain come and and work with our parents to do a presentation. And actually, it was really interesting because um, we had planned to have the the English-speaking presentation from Dr. Kutcher, or Senator Kutcher now, yes. uh, in the main auditorium of one of the big, bigger schools. And then there was going to be an opportunity in the library to have the same presentation in Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And what we found was it was the opposite. So we had so many parents come who wanted the Mandarin presentation that that's what we did. We went with that. And, um, you know, it, it, we had the Dr. Kutcher in the, in the library. And it was an, a wonderful opportunity because we have now offered, uh, provided the opportunity for all of our secondary staff um, to come and have the go-to training in mental health literacy, which is on uh, teenmentalhealth.org. And this resource is available to everyone, including parents, with wonderful opportunities around uh, teening your parent and parenting your teen. <laughs> and, um, you know, that piece has allowed us to uh, really encourage dialogue uh, with teachers and parents around mental health and with counselors. And we're doing the same thing now in elementary through the EASE initiative, which is Everyday Anxiety Strategies for Educators. So we're offering those workshops. They've been developed by the Ministry for Children and Families. And they actually are the foundation around, again, tying in SEL and mental health um, and providing that opportunity for teachers to have lessons that target things around strategies for resilience and managing uh, anxiety, you know, all the way from K to 7. And um, we're doing the same thing for parents in a program called Skills for Life, where we're offering parents the opportunity to learn about social-emotional learning that their children are learning at school so that they can be using the same language. So that when the child is overwhelmed, they can say, let's take a breathing break, right? Let's do our, our mindful breathing. And, you know, see the bubble. Everyone breathe into the bubble, right? And, you know, when your child's having that meltdown in Costco, it's good to have that trick. (laughs) So let's all breathe. So, yeah, there's lots of things going on there. Good. There are lots of fantastic questions coming through. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Humble for another one. So, Humble, I notice, like many Sikhs, you're wearing a bangle. What does it signify? What role, if any, has faith played in overcoming mental health challenges in your life? Oh, that's a great question. So this is my, my, my kara. It's, it's made out of iron, and I just came back from Trinidad, so it's completely rusted from the salt water. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations for a lot of different people, and I'm hesitant to have an opinion on this without <laughs> somebody being like, that's not the truth. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, you know, for me, Sikhi, uh, Sikh means student. And uh, for me, it's a heritage more than a faith. It's a way of life. And, you know, I, I for me, the, you know, the Qara 
you know, I was raised to believe, you know, this is, it reminds you of the eternal, it's a circle. And um, it had pragmatic uses back then because we're a very martial society. We fought in a lot of wars, so they used to wear a whole bunch of them. Um, but to me, it's, it's what my heritage is, you know, the same way people put a big piece of silk around their neck to look professional out here in the Western <laughs> society. This is what, you know, my heritage dictates and it's something I want to celebrate from that standpoint. Um, I think, you know, the true essence of Sikhi, you know, even though there's a, a superficial element where people think of Sikh, they think a guy with a beard and a turban, it's really about your karm mohankar, which is your relationship with uh, your lust, your anger, your greed, attachment, and your ego. Um, ego being the biggest one, and there's, in some of the hymns, discussing, the, you know, your ego is the size of an elephant, the, the door to peace is the size of a mustard seed. You know, we've heard this analogy in the Bible as well. Um, being cognizant of my ego, being cognizant of how often feeding that, it's an insatiable beast, you know, feeding our ego is insatiable, um, how much that takes us away from peace. So for me, you know, learning, learning it from a, philosopher, from a philosophy standpoint has helped out a lot. Um, and just recently, you know, learning that, you know, we chase pleasure because we don't have peace. And pleasure feels like a shortcut to peace, the same way lust is a shortcut to love. You know, it's, you know, really making these connections back and, and realizing that these aren't philosophies that are exclusive to, you know, the gurus in North India from 500 years ago. Confucius talked about it. I, you know, I hear these in Kanye West songs. I, you hear them everywhere. Um, you know, great universal advice on the human condition is going to exist everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, from that standpoint, um, I think I find a lot of strength that way. And I think also the idea, and a lot of us are, are held back by fear. Um, living the life that we want to live, fear for whatever, fear for disappointing other people, fear for being judged, fear for what have you. And I think um, channeling that power and that energy inside you, whether people refer to it as God, whether people refer to it as their gut, whatever people refer to, you know, it seems to be consistently, you know, the, the antidote to fear and the antidote to chaos. Um, so really, you know, encouraging people to explore that universe inside and seeing how that allows them to kind of, uh, you know, move despite the fears that we all might be fearing. So I think for me, that's helped a lot. And I think um, as well as just committing myself to a life of being a lifelong learner, knowing that I get excited when something I believed for so long, just like the bubble gets popped. And getting, you know, it's overwhelming to get that fresh air immediately, but you're like, I'm still learning, which means I'm still growing. I'm not stagnant. Um, so I'm okay with getting proven wrong. I'm okay looking back at this talk five years from now and being like, what was I thinking? But I think, you know, it's exciting to, to chase progress. Um, so for me, I don't chase perfect, I chase progress. And I think from that standpoint, uh, the heritage that I'm, I've been raised in, uh, which is very assertive and focuses on learning, has been such a gift for me. And I think as well as just being a visible minority. Uh, never having the safe space um, and learning to thrive despite it mm -hmm. has taught me to never chase it yeah. and never look for it because uh, some complacency would exist for me there. Um, and I think for me now, as a kid, I wish I was invisible. I wish nobody noticed me. Uh, now I see the resilience that came from it. So I, I see a lot of gifts that came from that. Thank you. I have an interesting question here that 
is open to all of us. How can students better support teachers in their mental health? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> hmm. Well, well I would, yeah, I would say um, that one of the things that's so important about that is student voice. And I know that we're, you know, very aware of the fact that it's like nothing about us without us, right? right. So we're understanding that students need <coughs> to be part of the conversations around how to make our schools, um, you know, connected, caring. Um, you know, we're doing lots of work in different areas to support all kinds of, of um, students across the spectrum in terms of being individual learners, um, our students who identify as LGBTQ2+, um, our students who are coming from international um, you know, destinations and backgrounds, and ELL learners. And so we're trying hard to make sure that we get representative voice around things. I know right now in our district, one of the things we're doing is creating a framework for social emotional learning and mental health. And we've gone out and asked our students and our staff and different people, what, what do we want our schools to look like, sound like, feel like, be like in five years, in 10 years? You know, what, what is our vision for this? And it's so interesting when we engage our students in those conversations because I think what they'll say is, you know, if I feel connected to my school and I feel safe and I'm learning, I know that my teachers are feeling connected too. And the, the reality is that for teachers, when they know that the kids are coming to school and they're being cared for and they're safe and that they're there to learn and they have what they need to learn and that teachers have what they need to teach, then we can create um, you know, situations where we're doing that kind of work. Thank you. I've got a question here for Patty mm -hmm. um, regarding UBC. There's a, a few that are sort of similarly framed. Um, but essentially, um, maybe you could give us some actual real, real examples of how UBC is addressing mental health needs for university students. Mm -hmm. um, and in the context of universities, how can students and faculty find the balance in supporting each other's mental health journey? It's the same sort of question. Sure. So what's been happening, I'd say, is over the past 10 years, this conversation's been emerging within post-secondary about um, how important mental health is for learning and acknowledging that <coughs> um, within higher education, we have a responsibility to provide um, quality services that, that go hand in hand with the community resources that are available. So uh, we've looked at some of um, the innovations that have happened across um, other institutions like Memorial and other places where the research is looking at step care models um, and really looking at ways in which uh, students can access a range of different types of support. So uh, when I first started this work at UBC, we had one place students could go if they were struggling, which was the counseling center. And now we have a range of supports. We have peer supports where students can go and talk to a, a trained peer uh, who can help them navigate the system because sometimes it's complex and hard to figure out, especially if you're struggling. We have a number of online resources that we've invested in that people, as has been stated, sometimes folks aren't ready to go see someone in person or they have stigma or other um, constraints that means they can't physically go somewhere. So we've looked at providing online resources for students. We have at the university a 24 seven line that students could call called Empower Me and students can call
call that anytime, 24-7. It's multilingual, and you don't call and talk to a, an operator. You actually connect directly with a mental health professional. And from there, students can, in the moment, if they're having a panic attack at 3 in the morning, they can, they can have someone you know, talk to them, um, to help them understand what they're going through, and then also look at follow-up support. So there's opportunity to connect with a counselor in the community somewhere. You know, if we have commuter students who live in Surrey, they may not be able to get to the campus for counseling. So we want to provide things that are in the community as well and start stepping up. So looking at on-campus supports through counseling services. We still have that counseling center, but it's no longer working all on its own to support a whole community of over 50,000 students. Um, we have this whole range. And the work that's left to be done is better integration with community services, so working better with our local health authorities, continuing to help students navigate those supports. So one of the pillars of uh, mental health literacy is help-seeking efficacy. How can we help students understand what's available, how to navigate so that when students really do need help, it's there for them. Uh, so those are some of the things that we're investing in. And I think in terms of looking at the connections between um, student mental health and faculty mental health and the pressures of university, uh, just as, as was stated, stress is always going to be there. So as far as I can see, um, as much as I would love to transform the culture of higher education, it is a competitive, competitive environment, and that's the current culture of higher education. Mm -hmm. So not that I condone all of that stress and competition, but the reality is, is that's, the, that's the situation currently. So I do think that there's work to be done on that front in terms of transforming what higher education looks, looks like for our students. In the meantime, I think we need to help people develop good coping strategies and create healthier campus communities where people do feel truly supported, just like in the, in the K-12 system. Thank you. That's really impressive, all of those. I didn't mm -hmm. even know that. So. Good to know. Um, I'm cognizant of time, but I do want to ask Terry uh, another follow-up question. You have a great deal of experience teaching in rural and remote communities. And as many of us know, we are now, um, we have the Okanagan campus that the Faculty of Education is in you know, one, uh, one university, two campus, and the dean is very busy commuting back and forth to Kelowna. <laughs> um, but could you please speak to the challenges that teachers and students living in rural and remote communities may face regarding their mental health? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be challenging in uh, rural communities for sure. I mean, um, it's challenging to get professionals in many of our smaller communities, and so mental health professionals are no different. Uh, and so what we really see is a real lack of community-based support. Um, Sometimes we have um, counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists that come in to communities for a short period of time, um, but the reality is there isn't that ongoing support in community-based support for a lot of our um, for a lot of our students and our and our teachers, uh, and so uh, that definitely uh, has a has an impact on just that accessibility uh, to the kind of support that's needed. Uh, and, it, and it means that there are a lot more of the responsibility falls in the school uh, and the school community in order to support students and families that are experiencing uh, trauma and stress. And so uh, it really does um, add, add to the job in, in smaller communities. And uh, you know, it definitely has an impact uh, there on, on teachers. So uh, yeah, it, it definitely, there's definitely, um, 
uh, an unequal and geographic, I mm -hmm. would say, disparity uh, in terms of uh, those kinds of supports. Well, I wonder if there's a closing, closing remarks or things that you'd like to share with the audience um, before we start to conclude the event. But anything that uh, hasn't been asked that you'd like to know, you know, to share with our audience? I'm acting as a bridge audience <laughs> analyst. <laughs> I'll, I'll get us started. I think just picking up on a thread of the whole conversation, which is mental health literacy, and just how important it is for us to move from a place of awareness. We're all aware that mental health exists and that mental illnesses are impacting people mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis in our country, but this literacy component is critical. It's critical um, for our teachers, for our students, parents, um, for university students, um, right across the spectrum, and I think everyone here can take active steps towards becoming more literate, so learning those help-seeking skills, learning what, what mental illness symptoms look like so you know when someone needs to go to the hospital or see a doctor or go to a counselor and you can help your, um, your family members or your um, youth that, that may be struggling um, or a fellow colleague who may be struggling. So I'm um, really being able to turn that awareness into action, which to me means um, investing in mental health literacy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I would, you know, build on that by saying that by giving our, our students the language of feelings and then understanding that everyday stress is normal and that there are situations that happen um, that ca cause us distress, mental distress, mm -hmm. and that there are also situations that carry on for a longer time that are mental problems, but all of that is not mental illness. And yet, when we do have a mental illness, we need to reach out for help and how to get that help along the way, I think is a great gift to give our students so that as they move into adulthood, into post-secondary and into adulthood, whatever they choose to do with their path, that they're able to navigate the challenges that are inevitably going to come their way, um, many of which we heard about in, in Humble's mm -hmm. talk. And I think if we can give our students those tools, um, they're going to be well equipped to deal with a very complex and changing world that we live in. And I, and I would just uh, speak to a little bit around the underlying issues in terms of ensuring schools are safe and inclusive spaces. Uh, we've doing doing a lot of work around um, SOGI one two three, and uh, ensuring that um, you know there is that understanding and. Uh, and inclusiveness, and, and I would just say sa like safety, and that's an ongoing that's ongoing work, mm -hmm. um, and it's really important work. Uh, Anti-racism education has been uh, something that we were working on. Um, indigenous knowledges and perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, really um, sort of working on uh, looking at um, you know where st where our students come from, where our teachers come from. Uh, and ensuring uh, that the whole school community is working on on those safety aspects because it, it does take a, a whole school community, um, and uh, and and that you know that's some of the work that uh, we've been doing as well, uh, and uh, in in terms of just you know making sure that those issues are addressed and uh, and dealt with. Thank you. Um, oh. <clears throat> yes, I want to start by like zooming all the way in, because I do feel like 
some of the challenges that we're dealing with, as I said, they're going to evolve as well. So for example, st with stigma, <clears throat> maybe 10 years ago, using the word mental health, couldn't be saying now, you know, people are like, oh, I don't want to go clubbing, I'm having a mental health day, and that seems to be acceptable. Um, you know, especially with social media, so much disinformation can get spread. Um, one of the ones that I, I see a lot is this idea of a toxic person. Mm -hmm. People aren't toxic. We can make toxic choices. All of us can make toxic choices. Um, and that is a stigma that is just as dangerous as people thinking that you're possessed if you have a mental health, mental health issue. Um, we have to recognize that, you know, it's a matter of tools. As we discover things that impact our mental health the same way as our physical health. I think step one is to prioritize our mental health as much as our physical health. Mm -hmm. Understanding that everybody knows physical health is important. That doesn't mean everybody makes all the right decisions. It's the same thing with our mental health. We know screen time impacts our mental health. We still do it. We understand certain things. Um, and constantly challenging those stigmas for ourselves and realizing that we're going to be lifelong students for this process, but also realizing this isn't simply about making people feel better so they can be more successful in school or helping students. This has real-world implications. You know, the mental health of our population impacts us economically. It impacts crime. Mm -hmm. It impacts how people who don't have tools choose to medicate. Mm -hmm. You know, this impacts everything. So this isn't mm -hmm. simple. This is a very practical um, endeavor that we all have to contribute to. It matters. Mm -hmm. It's going to impact us. And for me, I'm so... I'm fortunate and I'm proud, you know, that I'm from Canada. I spend a lot of time in the States. And sometimes when I describe Canada to, to my American friends, it's as if I'm talking about the future. You know, they're just like, <laughs> you just go to the doc, you just go to the doctors and like, that's it. And it doesn't matter which one you go to. I'm like, I can go to four doctors in the same day if I like. And, once I forgot my health card and it was still cheaper than what you guys pay. And, um, you know, it's exciting to know that, especially here at UBC, you know, st you know starting the Center for Mental Health Literacy um, is happening because, you know, it's going to show the rest of the world how much of the forefront this matters. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, this isn't just simply a philosophical issue. This is a real life issue that's going to impact everybody. The choices that we make, the, the, the things that we choose to fund, uh, the direction we take as a society, um, especially with fake news, with fear, you know, and as everybody has said, you know, it's not about getting rid of stress, you know, an easy day at the gym is a bad day at the gym, you know, stress is okay, competition is okay, pressure builds diamonds, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of us having better tools. I went to Poland at the beginning of January and I learned breathing work and I learned ice work. I sit in ice. And you sit in ice for about 15 minutes and nothing else is gonna stress you out in your day <laughs> the same way as sitting in ice. And the stigma behind that, people were like, wouldn't my, you know, won't my fingers fall off in three minutes? And mm -hmm. we realize that fingers won't fall off in three minutes. But you know, realizing the history of anxiety comes from our fight or flight. And realizing it goes back to tools. Anybody that you see that that displays what we call toxic behavior is just mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't have the tools. Mm -hmm. If a baby throws up on us or a baby throws a tantrum at us, we're forgiving because we, we tell ourselves they don't know any better. 
That's the same thing if our professor does it, or the bank teller does it, or the person that cuts you off in traffic. Sometimes they don't know any better, or sometimes they lack the capacity because it's been a long day to make a better choice. And empathy is, needs to be the underlining situation here, because we may not always have access to these talks, to, to, to the real academics who are doing the work on the front lines, but we can all care. And we can all take, realize that, hey, let me give my emotions 90 seconds to exist, and let's see, and not make a decision based off how I'm feeling. And I thought it was something interesting earlier when we talked about uh, how can students help teachers. A friend of mine said something interesting that I, I realized, you know, beyond very young children, I think this applies to all of us. He goes, I'm raising my kids to make decisions based off their commitments and not their feelings. And that made me think about how often I make decisions based off my commitments versus my feelings. You know, nighttime means like you're going to get up in the morning and go for a run. Morning me doesn't feel like going for a run. <laughs> but morning me needs to remember what my commitment is. And I had a student, you know, when I was a student teacher, and he, he had an IEP for his behavior. I had the first time I'd ever had a student for IEP for his behavior. And the system they had was a red card system. And if he felt overwhelmed and upset, he'd raise the red card, permission, he'd get permission to leave. If I felt like he was disrupting the class, I could raise the red card and he could leave. Um, or he should leave and dis uh, disconnect. And what I realized was I, didn't, I wasn't properly prepared for it, nor was he. Neither of us were properly committed. And when he raised the card and I was still heated, I still said things I shouldn't have said. And when I raised the card, he refused to leave. Neither of us had m made decisions based off our commitments. We made decisions based off our feelings. And that can happen either way. And at, at the end of the day, just understanding that and making room yeah. for us to be humans. Yeah. And I'm going to take that baton from you. And thank you for talking about the center that we are trying to build. And um, just in my closing remarks, I certainly hope that you enjoyed this spotlight and panel. It really was an experiment to, to, to do this both. I think it worked pretty well. Um, and to thank Humble, Terry, Connie, and Patty for your knowledge and expertise.